if I had a crystal ball, I would say within a decade, maybe two, if you're not building with modular, you're going to be slowly going down the drain. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. Join us as we explore an industry that is evolving with new products, designs, practices, and technologies. From builders to remodelers to executives, as well as those with outside perspectives, each episode of Construction Disruption meets with forward thinkers as well as other, others in the know who share their unique insights. Construction Disruption is created and sponsored by Isaiah Industries, a manufacturer of specialty metal roofing systems. I'm Seth Heckman, sales manager here at Isaiah. Uh, my co-host today is Todd Miller, our president. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, pulling all of this off, we have Ethan Young, our content writer, and Ryan Bell, uh, creative director. Uh, so, Todd, getting started on this episode, I know uh, you've been on the road some the last couple of weeks at an industry event and show. I uh, just wanted to hear uh, what you're bringing back. What have you learned here recently uh, that uh, would um, would be of interest to our listeners? I have indeed, and that was exciting. So last week, uh, we had our uh, industry's major trade show, MetalCon, was held last week in Tampa. And... 2020, we didn't have a metal con, so our last one was 2019 in Pittsburgh. But, um, you know, it was really, really good to see competitors and vendors again. Um, now I say that because there really were not a whole lot of customers at the show. It was relatively low attendance, and I, I don't really track that up so much to COVID as I do. Just everyone is so busy. We're in such a busy time and such a vibrant industry right now with so much going on. Um, so it was it was fairly quiet from the customer perspective, although we did have several prospects and customers who did come through that we had some great conversations with. But I think that the thing that I've really learned the last couple of weeks is the importance of those relationships with vendors. We, for many years as a company, have always really valued and appreciated the relationships we have with our vendors. Um, you know, we have suppliers that we know that, hey, if we're in a pinch and we need them to go above and beyond, they're going to do their best to do that. And I feel like the last couple of years, we lost some of that. And I think part of it has been because of the lack of personal interaction and seeing each other and spending time with each other. Um, part of it, frankly, is just the craziness of the world that we're in. But I, I've really had driven home to me uh, the last couple of weeks the importance of those relationships with our vendors. And certainly then we hope that our customers likewise see the importance of the relationship with us. And I think it reminds us that we need to especially during these times when maybe you're not able to do as much physical vis visiting as you would like, we need to really continue to step up those ways to connect uh, with customers and others out there. And, you know, one of the things I started this morning, I had done way back during the height of COVID, I was doing daily videos and putting them out on social media. Well, this morning I restarted that and started doing it again. And, you know, I just really like that 
ability to have that being in front of people, remind them of you. And then, you know, hopefully, hey, I love it if they reach out and return and we get some communication going at that point. So, and, and uh, today we have our exciting construction disruption swag. So those of you on podcast can't see this, but we got these cooler cool tumblers. And I think basically tumbler was this way for people to be able to drink wine out of a mug. I don't know. That's not what we've got. I got coffee. I swear. In fact, I burned my lip on it. Um, But anyway, so we've got our construction disruption tumblers and every guest, our guests, including our guest today uh, on our podcast or vodcast, that's a new word I learned recently, vodcast, um, is going to get a free complimentary construction disruption tumbler. So that's exciting. Yeah, fantastic. I I got one too. I guess that's my uh, compensation for co-hosting. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably a bit of overpay, overpay. but you know we're gonna do it anyway. I appreciate it. No, I think those supplier relationships. It's so incredibly important, and like you said, we strive to be that relationship for with our customers. You know, something that your dad has always always said, you've always said, and now it it really permeates our company. Is we're not successful if our customers are not successful, and it works uh, so much better when everyone through the stream is operating with that way. And with current supply shortages and the craziness and everyone on allocations, I've had some conversations with customers and other peers in the industry that, yeah, no one's really jumping around right now, but uh, we have in our head in back of our mind of who do we want in our foxhole next time things get crazy. And um, yeah, you know, that's the reality. Great point. And I, uh, yeah, we, we all need to be thinking about that because uh, I think the speed of crazy only keeps increasing. <laughs> it seems like in my life speed and frequency. <laughs> so yeah, you want to, you want to know who those partners are that uh, stuck with you and we're still with you during those crazy times. That's a good point. Absolutely. I am excited uh, for our guest today on Construction Disruption. We are joined by the Mod Coach, Gary Fleischer, a leader and veteran of the modular construction industry and publisher of the Modular Home Builder blog at uh, modularhomesource.com. Todd, it has traditionally felt like that modular construction is a very distinct, isolated silo of our industry. Uh, We knew of it, but it has had very little impact on what we do or what we thought about. Um, But that has definitely changed the last couple of years. Uh, We are seeing great innovation coming out of that industry, significant investment going into that industry. Absolutely. And many of us, I know, are thinking uh, about the advantages of modular construction now uh, and some advantages they have facing some of the greatest challenges uh, we face holistically as an industry. So uh, this is a fantastic opportunity to learn more and, um, you know, take that conversation. So thank you so much, Gary, for joining us uh, here today. I'm happy to be here. I offered a short bio uh, on you to open up the short bio of pretty much everything I knew about you and your background. So (laughs) thought thought that uh, we'd then here to start just learn more about your history in modular construction and why you've really uh, devoted your career to it. Uh, actually, I've been in the construction-related industry for about 40 years. Uh, started my life in this industry as the manager of one of the largest uh, lumber yards in Pennsylvania and uh, went from that to running my own uh, business as a GC. Uh, did that for 13 years. And uh, one day I fell off of a... Uh, second floor uh, deck, and uh, I said, this isn't for me anymore. Wow. Goodness. So 
I uh, joined a company. I joined Champion actually as a HUD rep, and that was a different time in my life selling mobile homes. But they had this interesting thing called Genesis Homes, which was a true modular IRC-based home, and they were looking for their first salesman. Uh, and I volunteered, and next thing you know, I'm selling uh, Genesis Homes everywhere east of the Mississippi. And I cut my teeth with Champion on their Genesis Home line and uh, haven't looked back since. I have been with uh, several companies. And then it doesn't seem possible, but I retired. And I, right before I retired, I started writing a blog. And it was to help my own builders, uh, mostly. Uh, got tired of having them call me all the time and uh, emailing me. So I started uh, being proactive and doing this little blog before blogs were even popular. And it was uh, to inform them on a daily basis of what's new out of our factory. And that is what the uh, Genesis 4 uh modular home builder was. I decided when I retired, uh, that only lasted about uh, six months of doing nothing until my wife says, you either find something to do or I'll find you something to do. (laughs) So I resurrected the uh, blog and I haven't looked back. Uh, And now it's uh, probably the most widely read uh, modular blog. Uh, Mm -hmm. I get about three and a half million uh, page views a year. And uh, I do it all from my little office here in my house. And uh, I go on the roads. I hold uh, builder breakfasts. I hold all-day modular uh, boot camps, uh, which are really unique. I bring people in from all over the world to talk. Uh, We meet in central locations. And I I get 100 to 150 people at those uh, uh, shows and events. So... Right now, COVID has sort of uh, restricted me to in my travels, and uh, I was all set to go on to Dallas for a uh, uh, a live seminar. And uh, good golly, Southwest decided to shut down all their planes. Oh yeah! <laughs> so I had to do it by uh, video, and that was interesting. But anyway, that's that's my short history. Well, I always enjoy what you write, and you are. Very much, I would say, no holds barred. You say what you think and what you've learned, and and I love it. So I I really enjoy. Keep up the good work on that. Yeah, go ahead. Ask me some really pointed questions. I'll give you some critical (laughs) answers. (laughs) There we go. Looking forward to those. So obviously a powerful advocate for the industry. I'm curious, you know, that career selling modular homes, I'm showing my ignorance here. What does what does that distribution channel look like? Who are you going out and calling on? And um, who then are you now primarily educating? Traditionally, it has been new home builders, uh, on-site builders that have converted to uh, modular. Uh, just makes it a lot easier for them. An on-site builder um, averages about five to seven homes a year. If they switch to modular, at least back when I was uh, full-time and things were really good and you could get supplies and you could get uh, Mm -hmm. things to the production line quickly, uh, that same five to seven homes could jump to as high as 2025 because 
all the uh, main work, about 80% of it was done in a factory. They didn't have to worry about anything. The only thing they had to do was wait until the house was set on the foundation and then go in and do the uh, final, uh, send a crew in and do the final uh, uh, finish. So modular really started in that builder realm, uh, replacing on-site building. And that, that's really it. And then you have to differentiate modular from manufactured. Um, manufactured homes are built to the HUD code, which is not a lesser code, but it's a federal code. And their inspection process is very quick, very uh, easy, um, and they turn out a lot of homes. You've all seen the single and double wide uh, parks and uh, the single wides and double wides sitting in the middle of uh, the country. But modular fits right in with the R1 neighborhoods. Uh, you, They are so custom, especially in the East Coast. Uh, custom modular is the king. Uh, I've seen two box modulars go out. I've seen... Well, I didn't see this one, but I heard about it. A 41-module house, 14,000 square feet, uh, all modular, and the entire 41,000 square, or I'm sorry, 14,000 square foot home was set, finished, and they locked the front door in two days. Goodness. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's beauty of modular. Well, and that ink gain and efficiency and jump of what that example, a builder going from five to seven to 20 to 25, you know, that's really what has us, you know, taking note of modular and what that's going to look like for the future of the industry, because we're all having to do more with the same or even less. And so how do we accomplish our goals in the process? But that customization element is something I was thinking about preparing for our conversation because in, in reading through your blog in preparation where I realized I had this very distinct picture in my head of a modular home. You know, the, yeah, the very simple ranch that looked like it had just been dropped off the truck two weeks ago, regardless of how old it was. And that, uh, that was kind of the look, but going through your, your blog and seeing your posts each week of modular home of the week was obvious that that is not the case or that's not the, you know, yes, those exist, but that is not the limitation. So yeah, tell us more about that customization and what that looks like from a modular perspective. Just about anything you can imagine for a site-built home, an architecturally designed home, can be transferred over to the modular industry. Um, not everything. I mean, there are homes you cannot possibly build modular, but there are homes you can. In fact, uh there are homes that are so unusual. Uh, one looks like a Martian from outer space, and it comes in three sections, and it's built in a factory and put together and stacked three three high. Uh, I mean, it really is strange. Uh, some look like uh, long uh, whiskey barrels uh, come in sections, and everything's pre-finished inside with a grass roof on it. They even plant the grass in the factory. I mean... You name it, it can probably be built modular. But the custom part of it is slowly going away uh, for a couple of reasons. There are the skilled labor market. 
that's tough. I mean, the the craftsmen that used to be out there to do that, there a lot of them are still there, but now you have factories that need to turn out more modules a week, so they're discouraging uh, custom because custom takes time, and even in a factory, it takes time. And if your backlog, which is currently in the industry, I just did a poll on this. If you order a home today, if you're a builder and you order a home today, you, it will probably take you a year to get it. That is so the way it is. The supply chain, the labor, the transportation, it's all killing. Uh, well, it's not only killing modular, it's killing all uh, site building. And how, how does that one year compare to, say, two years ago? What was it? Was that number? Uh, two years ago was probably two months. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And that big change. COVID just killed everything. Uh, I mean, I I understand COVID's a pandemic, and I understand everything. I, but whether we overreacted to it or not, I mean, that's up to the politicians and scientists. All I know is it hurt everybody's industry. Yes. Um, and especially hurt the modular industry. Yeah, so you're you're touching on two key topics I wanted to get your perspective on. So you know we'll we'll jump into that supply chain conversation. Um, you know I've been driving on my way to work past this commercial building being built here in uh, Pickwell, Ohio, and it is a building that very simple would have uh, yeah two years ago probably been up and operational and turning money in just a couple of months and it has taken you know almost a year so no doubt affected by these supply chain disruptions and shortages and and all those things and thinking about how that might apply to modular you know I was wondering if it is if it's not a greater effect on the modular industry, just because uh, I'm guessing most of these manufacturers don't have a lot of spare space to store uh, part <laughs> partway built homes or, or other properties on uh, in, at their location, and you know through that process, if you're dealing with shortages, you're obviously losing a lot of the efficiencies. I would think of of assembly line construction and, and in factory construction. So would love to hear what you're seeing and if some of that is how that is playing out in that industry. Well, you're partway right. Okay. Uh, there is still a huge advantage in modular in the commercial side. Huge advantage. Now you talked about the uh, building taking forever to build on site. Well, if you are a developer and that is your building, you are paying uh, in carrying costs, interest. You you are fighting to find uh, subs. You are fighting to get them scheduled in because you're competing with every other on-site uh, builder and uh, GC out there. With modular, it takes the same amount of time, but once those units are done in the factory, so far, the, the developer hasn't really paid anything except a down payment. So if it takes him eight months to a year to get that project out, he's not out any additional money or carrying costs or anything else. So when that project arrives, they can put up 40, 60 modules for a motel for, or a hotel, for example, in two to three days. And all of a sudden, while that project that was on site is costing that developer an arm and a leg, 
the clock didn't start on the modular side until it hit the site. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that is, that project is probably 70 to 80% complete. So all they're doing is finish work, connections, the MEP. Uh, and usually within two months, maybe three at the outside, that hotel's up and uh, taking guests in, making money. And that's a lot different than that on-site guy that, you know, he, he's losing money. So, and then on the the skilled labor side, you mentioned, be, you know, customization being shrunk back, just trying to find folks that can, that can do that, uh, offer that craftsmanship. So what is, uh, how's that looked and played out over the last few years in uh, modular? Because from our perspective, it seems like they have a huge advantage on that side where, yeah, there's no risk of falling off a second story deck when you're <laughs> at ground level in a plant. So, um, you know, competing for that scarce uh, supply of skilled labor. So, Well, the ind- the modular industry definitely has an advantage with that. I mean, you go to the same building to work every day. Uh, the modular factories are very COVID-19 uh, responsive. The safety features in the factory are basically second to none. And you're right, even in the factory, when the guys are up on the uh, roof, even though it's only one story, and they, they're they hooked up to all the safety uh, that's available to them, the belts and the, the uh, bars and everything are there. And the problem that they have right now is basically just everybody's having it, is hiring uh, people. It doesn't, they'll even train, and they're paying good wages. I'll give you a real good example of what happened in my little county. Uh, there's 40,000 people in my county. Uh, we have a high uh, poverty rate, but there is a humongous uh, shortage of labor. But what happened is, just in my little town, 29,000 people, we now have three Amazon distribution centers and a last-day distribution center. So we have four Amazon warehouses in my town, each of them over 100,000 square feet. Um, We have Chewy is opening up. We have two tractor supplies. We have a a Lowe's distribution center. We have Kellogg's distribution. We have more distribution centers here than just about anywhere in the country. We have, because we're an intersection of two railroads, and two interstate highways. So we are perfect for this. We're, our town's called the Hub City. What's happened now, traditional industries out there can't compete with Amazon. Amazon sucked up over 500 employees in less than a year, just out of the available uh, people out there. So now we're scrambling for uh, uh, labor. It's not a matter that they don't want people don't want to work or we paid them uh, 300 hours extra a year uh, a week or whatever. Uh, it's the fact that there's just so many more distribution points and so many more businesses on that scale opening up and just sucking up everybody that isn't on that was unemployed. Wow, that's a powerful example. I was uh, talking with a friend in the industry who 
told me that, yeah, another building products manufacturer is looking to expand, is growing, needing people. And they looked at this building that would be perfect, but it was next door to an Amazon distribution center. And they had to move on because they knew people would walk from their parking lot right over to Amazon, unfortunately. Yeah, and I I can't imagine working at Amazon. They actually expect results. (laughs) But... uh, you know, you're well connected on obviously uh, the best out of anybody uh, in that industry. So, any manufacturers, modular manufacturers doing creative, unique, innovative things to try to address that skilled labor challenge? Well, we have to. Um, and two of them uh, that come to mind real quick Autoval in Idaho. I don't know if you've ever heard of Autoval. I have not. Uh, in the modular factory, up until three, four, or five years ago, it was totally manual. Everything from the time the uh, lumber hit the uh, one door and out the other, it was human labor. Now, automation, robotics is hitting. And the robotics at this point can't go past the framing stage because that's really the automation. When you get an MEP and the final finish and hanging cabinets and uh, uh, installing bathrooms, that's still very manual. Look for that to start changing. Hmm. But right now it's manual. But the the fascinating part is Autoval's uh, robots and they are uh, supplied by House of Design, also in Idaho. And it's the most choreographed thing you've ever seen in your life. I mean, they just pick up the lumber, they put it in, they nail it. And uh, one video I watched of them, there were two people in the entire side of the factory. That was it. And both of them were standing there just watching the machines in case they had a, they had a breakdown. But otherwise, uh, there were no human labor there. Everything is done by these... Um, Robots. I was reading a story. IKEA has one of the largest bookcase factories in the world. And I thought, well, this is sort of a stupid story until I read it. And there's nobody works there except some maintenance people and a couple engineers and a programmer. Everything else, when you buy an IKEA bookcase, it's completely from one door to the other, assembled, uh, cut, measured, stuffed into boxes and wrapped by robots. Wow. Yeah, so that's probably the biggest innovation. And that's on the west side of the Mississippi. On the east side, we have another company called Blueprint Robotics uh, is uh, doing the same thing. So, yeah, automation and uh, automated tables and robots are quickly coming into our industry. And, again, you can't do that on on a site-built home. You know, when I think back to a number of years ago when I was working a little bit in the manufactured housing industry, uh, I thought of certain geographic hubs where there was a lot going on. I mean, I thought of northern Indiana, Arizona, Florida. Uh, Is it more widespread now when we get into the modular uh, construction or are there still certain geographic centers? (laughs) Yeah, there are unique situations. Uh, Essentially, there's five five regions in the country. You've got the Northeast, which goes from about 
the Mason-Dixon line up through New York and through New England. Some of those states are as high as 26% modular built uh, hmm. homes. Out on to uh, Martha's Vineyard in that area, uh, one company alone, one modular factory alone has delivered over 500 homes to, to Martha's Vineyard. That means putting them on barges and uh, the cranes oh, yeah. go out in barges. And it's amazing watching the choreography of that. Then you move into the uh, the south, everything below the Mason-Dixon line, and you run into what they call an on-frame modular and very uh, little um, customization, but it's still popular. Uh, in fact, there's a couple new factories uh, getting ready to open uh uh, impressive building systems just bought a 240,000 square foot factory to start uh, turning out uh, modular homes for their franchisees and builders and developers in the South. So, I mean, the South is picking up tremendously. Hmm. Then you move into the Midwest, and that's always been a good so a good place for modular. But the modular in the Midwest tends to be two box or a uh, cape with an unfinished second floor. Yep. That is the, the, the hallmark of the, the Midwest. That's slowly changing, but not rapidly. You go to the Southwest and they go, modular? What's that? Uh, is it a double wide trailer? Is that what you're talking about? Because they really don't do modular housing down there. Because every, everything down there is usually on slab. Uh, and modulars do not work well on slab. In fact, they don't work at all well on modular uh, construction. You have to have a floor. So you put a floor on a, mod, on a concrete base, what do you got? You, you've right. got repetition. <laughs> and then you go to the West Coast. That is sort of like the the Petri dish of modular. Uh, Anything you can imagine, all the new ideas, all the new software, all the new innovation seems right now to be coming out of the West Coast. Uh, I mean, you got Silicon Valley there, and a lot of those engineers were laid off during the beginning of COVID. So they turned to other industries, and you're seeing, well, we're seeing, uh, innovations coming out that are just unbelievable. We're, we're doing AI and uh, the BIM is, uh, I mean, it's just tearing through our industry. Um, I mean, it's just amazing what what's coming out of there. Now, are, is it being used by the rest of the modular industry? Nah, not yet. But you wait. I mean, you can't continue to do business. We can't. As an as a modular industry, we cannot afford to do business as it's been done for the last 50 years. I'll give you a real good example. In 1856, they found or a manufacturer in Cincinnati, Ohio, was turning out modular cabins. Unbelievable. And they were shipping them by barge to the Midwest for the homesteaders. 1856. Wow, I'd never heard this before. Yes. Well, apparently a lot of the records disappeared, but and the homes weren't real well made. I mean, they didn't have to have electricity, plumbing, 
basically he didn't have to have anything except a four, you know, six six sided uh, structure. But they were stacked four, or they were stacked on barges in uh, in fours. Well, one of the barges uh, was recovered here about, I guess, 15, 20 years ago. And they, when they pulled it up, they found a, a wealth of things on there, including four decayed uh, modular homes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a museum dedicated to this one barge. I'll have to send you the link to that. But this has been going on since 1856. And aside from adding electricity, plumbing, and heating – Nothing in our industry has changed. I mean, it's just that simple. Uh, oh, we get more energy efficient. We get uh, greener. We get we added uh, sustainability. I mean, it's wonderful stuff to talk about. But boy, all it does is add cost to the modular home. And when you when IRC updates their uh, code. Every four years, our industry uh, gets hit with longer lead times at code offices. Uh, now, the on-site people can take in a 20-page, uh, for a new home, they can take in a 20-page plan, give it to the code office, and within a week, they'll get their uh, approval. Not with ma- uh, modular in a lot of states you have to send it to the state code office and there you're put on top of the pile or put in the bottom of the pile and and you slowly work your way up the top. And when you get there, in order for these uh, code people to continue doing their job, they find the smallest details to red flags, send it back to the fact. I've seen code approvals take six months and that's, well, you have to look at it this way. In Pennsylvania, uh, the manufactured housing industry and the modular are both done by the same office. And up until about five years ago, the modulars, uh, modular code uh, review by the state was done by the same people that inspected amusement rides. I mean, Wow. <laughs> There's just so many crazy things. (laughs) And what's it going to be like when all this new stuff comes in? I mean, you can't tell me that a a 60-year-old code enforcement officer is going to know anything about AI and how to to fly a drone. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Uh, So we're educating code officials right now through our associations. Wow. So what's the logic of that, of routing it through the state offices? Uh, you No, wait a minute. <laughs> You're asking for logic in a state right. government. Yeah, okay. Now, there are state governments that say, oh, you have a modular home? Uh, there are some states in the Midwest, to be unnamed, that if you have a piece of ground, you can go in and put your uh, uh, foundation in, have your modular home delivered, uh, set, and then you go into town and say, hey, I put a house on my property. Uh, you better come out and inspect it for taxes. I mean, so there's all sorts of – you can't pull that off in the east. You couldn't pull it off in the west, but the Midwest is probably very logical in what they're doing. But it's unpopular with the other with the other kids in the, in the class. 
thank you for that history. 1856. That was one of my questions. You know, how long have we <laughs> we've been doing this? So a while. Yes, I, I was born after that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so, and, and Lincoln told me he didn't even know about that. So there you go. <laughs> uh, so you gave us some insight into the history of modular construction, 1856, uh, here out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, swinging to the other end of the spectrum, you mentioned them earlier, the guys out on the West Coast and gals out on the West Coast who are doing some very innovative things. Uh, and that's really what has drawn our attention to modular over the last couple of years, uh, especially seeing a company called Katera in the news, especially seeing all the dollars that were being invested in Katera. And we know now that unfortunately Katera ceased to exist as of a few months ago, but would love your insight and you uh, undoubtedly know more about the history and, and how Katera came to be than we did, as well as what were they trying to do that was so innovative and cutting edge? I have a different outlook on Katera than just about anybody. Uh, so yes, I was hoping so. <laughs> you're ready for it? I'm going to give it to you. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Uh, Katera was uh, founded and funded by the same people that did WeWork. I don't know if you're aware of them. Yeah. But their uh, Hulu has a whole uh, movie about how WeWork uh, basically just took money and uh, <laughs> basically went out of business. So it's a, it's the same thing. Uh, you have investors that look at an industry and say, well, we can do it better than they've been doing it for the last 150 years, and we'll do it tomorrow uh, or later on today. We'll just start, and we'll pour a billion dollars into it to get it running. Well, I'm not sure about you, but I don't think I could pay the interest on a billion dollars. Mm. Uh, I'd rather have the billion than try to pay <laughs> the interest on it. But they did one thing that is really nice for modular housing. Uh, the first thing they did is they built this wonderful factory in California. I think it, California, Arizona. I'm not sure. Who knows? Uh, anyway, it's Katera's factory. And they... They built wall panels, they built doors, they built windows, they did all sorts of things all through automation. And when it went bankrupt, everybody in the industry is going, oh, woe is us, what are we going to do? Is this the future of uh, the, what's going to happen in the offsite industry? And it turns out that a company from the East, VW. Uh, uh, VBC uh, stands for uh, Volume Building Corporation or Vaughn Buckley Construction, uh, a very, very well-organized, well-funded company said, we'd like to buy that. And they did. And what they're doing is they're restarting it in a very organized, very uh, a knowledgeable way. They're taking each step of it and refining it, making it better without that billion-dollar investment. So now we have this VW, or VBC available on both sides of the country. Uh, it's owned by a young man named Vaughn Buckley, and he is one of the sharpest people I've ever known in the modular housing industry. He saw an opportunity, and he's taking that disastrous 
Katera billion dollar uh, eyesore, and he's turning it into a real gem. Fantastic. So that is a real nice thing. And Mercer out of Canada bought the CLT plant. So even though Katera went bankrupt, what is coming out of that bankruptcy are things that would have normally taken years to develop and get ready took overnight. So Mm -hmm. it's a good thing that way. And I feel sorry for the people that invested a billion dollars, but I feel happy that uh, VBC and Mercer were able to come in, pick it up for pennies on the dollar and actually make it work. Very interesting. Actually, as you tell that story, it reminds me a bit of our company because we have had a history of acquiring product lines a few years after other companies had made heavy investments, couldn't figure out how to make it go. And we came in and bought it, you know, on pennies on the dollar and, and made a go of it. So uh, a much smaller scale than than Von Buckley and Katera, but uh, very interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's probably one of the best things that's ever happened to the modular housing industry. Well, Sorry, Katera. <laughs> glad that the, the industry will still benefit from that. So, Oh, yes. I, I'm curious. So with that billion dollars, were they doing any, did they bring anything new, develop anything new or revolutionary for the industry? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Not one, not one new thing that hadn't already been tried. They, wow. uh, they brought in people that a lot, of, a lot of the people in the beginning knew what they were doing. And then, from my understanding, management decided that not to let them have free reign. They decided they were going to be more conservative. And the more money they lost, the more conservative they got. You know the story. Yeah. So one of the articles I read about them, you know, for a long time, they were, you know, they had people knocking on their door ready to build them or give them money. So they kept taking the investment and and building this huge kind of mess of vertical integration uh, all up and down, you know, their supply chain. Is that normal, the big guys, established guys in the industry being very vertically ori- uh, integrated or are they working with... It didn't used to be. It is, it's becoming very, uh, very much the norm for the newer companies. Interesting. Uh, they they uh, are project-oriented. In other words, they don't look at homes anymore. They look at module living units. So somebody, a developer will say, I can't build, I can't find enough modular companies to, to build my projects. I, I need a thousand modules a year and, and nobody has room under assembly lines to give me a thousand. Even if I go to 10 different factories and, and mesh them all together, I can't build that thousand modules. So what is happening now, a lot of these uh, people are opening their own factories. And what they're finding is that the efficiencies of running their own factory is so much better than it was doing it on site. Everything's brought into one house and then shipped out. And they they are becoming very, very vertically integrated within their system. In addition to that, some of these uh, factories that were started to build their own product became efficient enough to start taking on outside projects. 
But these outside projects want the same efficiency that they saw at the factory with the total vertical integration. So that's what's happening. You're, you're seeing factories at least being vertically integrated from design to engineering to production uh, to delivery to set. And some of them do their own finish, but most of them, once they're set, the finish comes uh, subcontracted. Uh, you've mentioned some uh, players that sound very interesting, like they're on the leading edge. VBC, obviously, Impreza, uh, Autoval are, are the few that I've written down. Any other manufacturers out there that you want to highlight or are bringing unique things to the table? I mean, you have uh, established... Uh, Modular such as uh, Gurdon Homes uh, or Gurdon Building Systems, uh, they are excellent. I mean, there's a bunch of them that are really doing some wonderful work. But what's very interesting um, are the companies that you wouldn't expect to be doing modular are getting into it themselves. Chick-fil-A, they built a modular factory. And they're turning out their own modular Chick-fil-A restaurants. Uh, who would have thought that? Down in Florida, there's a uh, factory down there that turns out checkers and rallies. Another one turns out Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on like that. Uh, one of the chicken places uh, besides Chick-fil-A, that uh, they're, they're also uh, buying modulars. So, yeah, there's some really... Uh, you're going to see some more unique things. I mean, you do realize that cruise ships aren't built at the dock. Are you aware of that? Where never you, never thought of it, no. Oh, no. The different sections of that cruise ship are built off-site and delivered to the dock in humongous barges, moved into the dock, and set in place. And then they're all just welded, just like you would set a house. Uh, They're all welded together, and then all the the lines are hooked together. But they can be building – they've cut the time on building a cruise ship substantially. Wow. Because instead of working from the bottom up and having all those people come to one place and uh, build it stick-built, basically, uh, with big sticks – they uh, subcontract the entire ship to a couple different yards, and then uh, they're put on barges, and like I said, just shipped there. Airplanes. Boeing builds a lot of their planes in modules, has it shipped in. The wings aren't built there. Wings are shipped in. The fuselage isn't built there. It's shipped in. So uh, when you look at modular, you, you see it more then you would suspect you see it. And it's growing. Uh, I expect, you asked, uh, what's the future going to look like? Well, if I had a crystal ball, I would say within a decade, maybe two, if you're not building with modular, you're going to be slowly going down the drain. That's powerful. It certainly sounds like it's going to be a game changer. Yeah, that's definitely something for our <laughs> listeners of yours to be paying attention to, that's for sure. What what are some of the statistics on modular construction as far as uh, rate of growth or dollars or whatever you might be able to share to help us get some idea of the scope and size? 
Uh, two years ago, it was between two and three percent of all new construction. Okay, <clears throat> but with what's happening today, I think it's gonna it's gonna probably rise a couple percent a year. At least that's my my thought. The problem with modular is capacity. Sure. And the on-site builders don't have a capacity problem. They have a worker problem. They just need to throw more workers at the stuff. So they're always going to be up to the the tracked home builders do the same thing. But a lot of them are switching to off-site manufacturing by having all their wall panels made off-site, all their trusses made off-site and shipped in. Um, very few of the big track builders build walls on site anymore. The, uh, but the modular factories, they're, the only way they can get capacity is build more floor space. Sure. Yeah, and floor space is expensive. Sure. And they're, a lot of them are having trouble working, getting one shift filled, and you would think, well, let's just run a, a second shift. Well, that that ship sailed for every industry in the United States, I think. There is very few outside of Amazon has a second shift running. And that's that's really the game. You just need to have capacity. And some of these factories, here's an interesting one for you. Some of these factories are shipping 1,000, 1,200 miles just to satisfy a developer's need. Uh, factories in Pennsylvania are delivering to Key West. Um, factories in Virginia are delivering to Colorado. I have one factory in uh, Minnesota that I've talked to, uh, nice people. And I said, where do you deliver to? And they said, oh, we'll go up to 1,000 miles. I said, how do you do that? He says, well, he says, it's pretty easy out here. He says, we just... Uh, Put in the address into our GPS, and it comes back. Get on the interstate, drive a thousand miles, take the first turn, first right, first road on the right. He said it's really easy, but he said still a thousand miles. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and that's you know shipping is increasingly a challenge, and drivers and all that type of stuff too. Oh yeah, the only I have, I am absolutely amazed that Amazon started delivering their own product. They bought a fleet of trucks, yep. and they don't seem to have a problem finding drivers. Yet we can't find tractor-trailer drivers to haul our product. Yeah, you're right. So, Gary, part of the vision of construction disruption and having these conversations is to hopefully serve as a resource for those uh, early in their career and giving them a forecast and outlook and maybe some uh, direction on on the future of construction and what that might look like. So curious, what's your thoughts if uh, and advice would be to someone earlier in their career getting into construction, modular or otherwise, and then uh, what, what would you tell them to be paying attention to? Learn a trade. If you're, if you're not going to college, learn a trade. Be an electrician, be a plumber, uh, HVAC. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, concrete. But learn a trade, and you will have value. You will have value beyond belief. Uh, an electrician in New York City—I mean, he makes more money than some CEOs at uh, corporations. 
uh, a plumber, uh, uh, oh my heavens. And we, in the last two decades, have told all the parents, well, if your kid doesn't go to college, he's not going to amount to anything. Well, I can tell you right now, there's a lot of people at McDonald's that have degrees that are asking if you want to supersize that. <laughs> but yep. if, if you want to make money and you want to have a career and you want to be in demand, learn trade. Uh, my son's a prime example. Uh, he's 50. Well, actually, he's 51. And he had a, he had a nice job in a, in a, uh, for a factory. He was a, a heavy equipment operator. And he got tired of it. He said, Dad, what can I do? I said, learn a trade. He said, I'm too old. I said, no, you're not. So he went to classes to be a CNC cutter in heavy gauge steel. Uh, we're talking things that are three and four inches thick. And turned out that he was uh, hired immediately. And uh, boy, he's got time in his hands. He's got money in his pocket. And his family just loves it. So, <laughs> you know, learn a trade. You want to know what the key is? Learn a trade. If you are, if you have a college degree or you're going to college, learn Take construction management, take construction engineering, take any of the engineering courses. They're all going to be rewarded uh, by modular and the offsite industry. Now, I keep saying offsite. You have to include both modular and offsite in the same sentence anymore. Used to be they were opposite people. But now there are panelized wall factories that are delivering the panels to modular factories. So they're, they're working together. Uh, one company up in Vermont uh, builds modulars or modules. And I said, do you ever do any stick building? He says, well, we don't do any stick here. But he said, uh, we have a couple uh, industries up here. One of them is Yankee Barn and one of them is Bensonwood that build the core of the house with all the, the raised ceilings and the big beams and all that. And he says, and then we come in and put the kitchens and the bathrooms and the bedrooms in as modules. We just integrate our system into that system. And if you ever want to see some beautiful homes, go to Bensonwood or go to uh, Yankee Barn Homes. Uh, beautiful stuff. And Try to figure out which parts of them are module. Fantastic. That and that was going to be one of my questions of what's this overlap starting to look like between modular and offsite and where we can maximize the benefits of both. So it's exciting to see those partnerships come together. And uh, we're going to need them, that's for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, we have to work together. The the problem at this point right now is when you go to IB, IBS and it's this year, it's going to be in Orlando. We will be there in full force. But when you go to the Building Systems Council, uh, you, you walk the floor, you uh, talk to the vendors, and you do a head count of how many modular factory owners are there. The last one that was held in Vegas, there were five modular factory owners at IBS. Hmm. Wow. 
Isn't that disgusting? That we should have been there and taken over the thing, but we, we're not. We are a group, we are an industry that has a lot of factories that don't talk to each other. Our associations are good, they're trying, but until we actually sit down at the table and begin working together to solve the problems, we don't have an education uh, division. We don't have we have one small marketing division in our in all of our associations. So we need to get those up and running. Uh, MHBA for the Modular Home Builders Association is having uh, their annual meeting in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, at the end of this month, and it's the first time that they've had this amount of people sign up. To, to find out about modular. So, yeah, it's growing. Uh, it's coming. and uh, But we, we have a long way to go as, as an industry. Well, thankful that there's people like you who are passionate and really leading that way and, and building those bridges to those of us who don't, don't know very much but are very curious and, and are hungry for the same connections. And I'm more progress. accused of blowing up bridges than I am <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're great. You're definitely the guy to be paying attention to. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you. So, uh, Gary, this has been a great conversation. Uh, here before we wrap up, transition into a you know more lighthearted portion of our conversation. If you're up for it, we call it our rapid fire question round. So, uh, I, the, I was I was fearing this, but let's go. <laughs> okay, so rapid fire. Seven questions range from maybe more serious or more silly, and we just uh ask for an answer for each and uh, those listening Gary has not seen these so it, it's going to uh, we'll we'll see what he comes up with but first question thanks for being willing first question Gary are you an introvert or an extrovert extrovert and a, a closet introvert okay there we go I understand that balance a little bit but I probably could have guessed that one after talking with you for a few minutes but okay question number two window or aisle seat on an airplane Oh, window, and especially on Southwest, you get the uh, the wing, the seat by the wing. You can put there's no seat in front of you. Okay, perfect. The exit row, extra room, fantastic. Best time of day for you to write? Three o'clock in the morning. Three in the morning. I've heard oh, early. He's morning. got me beat on that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm four. <laughs> I, I call three in the morning, middle of the night. So we have different definition of. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know it existed when I was younger, but now that I'm older, uh, you know, it, it's turned into a routine. Bathroom and then go right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Favorite dessert? Oh, shoe fly pie. Shoe fly pie. I have not heard of shoe fly pie. Oh, you're not. You're not a Pennsylvania Dutch. Okay. Uh, it's heavy molasses with a molasses cake and crumbs all over the top of it. Okay, sounds delicious. Yeah, next time you're in Pennsylvania, I'll buy you one. Okay, sounds good. Thank Wait you. a minute, you're in Ohio. It won't take long for you to travel here. No, we can just a few hours. Yeah. So, if you were a high school teacher, what subject would you teach? Oh, that's easy. Physics. Really. I expected shop class or, or something. Oh, no, 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 okay. no. I, I, I love physics. Very cool. Uh, can you paint us a picture of your dream home? Oh, that's an easy one. It's a two-bedroom ranch sitting in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, right oh. overlooking 
the Atlantic Ocean and the big rocks and the uh, the waves breaking. Beautiful. Beautiful. Last one. So what is your bucket list vacation? It used to be Europe, but I wouldn't go there now to, if you paid me. Uh, my bucket list vacation right now is probably Key West. I have not been ever been down to the, the bottom of Key West. Okay. Todd likes it down there. That's nice. Yes. Very cool. Well, thank you, Gary. That's fun. A little more insight into who you are. And uh, this has been a great, great conversation. So before we wrap up here, I know you have some new exciting developments on uh, the regarding website and your writing. So we'd love for you to tell us more about that. Oh, this will be a quick one, but it's, it's, you're right. It's very interesting. Uh, in July, my uh, original website was acquired by, well, actually it wasn't acquired. It was, cre- it was sold to myself and another person, and we call it iMedia Group. And we are working on launching an Offsite Builder magazine. That's the name of Offsite Builder. And it is going to be a print magazine, an online magazine, and a website. Uh that sh- our plans are to have it ready for uh, distribution starting in January, and you'll be able to sign up on LinkedIn and on my site to subscribe to the print magazine. Uh, Todd, you'll appreciate this. When you get a magazine, what do you do with it? You pass it around. You do. You yes. Do. You can't do that with a website. Nope, nope. You're absolutely right. You you put that little routing slip on and send it to others, and uh, yeah, absolutely. So offsite builder, I love it, and uh, everyone can be reminded they heard it here first. I think. Oh yeah, Breaking don't news. don't worry. If you're in the offsite industry, uh, we'll be in touch with you about uh, advertising. <laughs> cool. Very yeah. good. Thank you, gentlemen. Absolutely. To remind everyone, uh, Gary's website is modularhomesource.com. Gary, is the best way for people to get in touch with you through the website? No, actually just uh, modcoach at gmail.com. Okay, modcoach, M-O-D coach at gmail.com. Wow, what a great guest. Um, I really enjoyed our time with Gary. He uh, He's definitely the guy to go to if anyone has any questions about modular construction or off-site building, uh, as he says. Um, yeah, I, I, certainly my eyes were opened. Um, I, I keep hearing and, you know, we hear bits and pieces. And of course you related a little bit about Katera and I loved Gary's take on that, but you know, I still go back to 40 years ago when it was the manufactured housing, he was describing the single wides and the double wides and the park models. Um, but it has advanced so much beyond that at this point and his statistic in New England, uh, what was that? 26? 26% of all construction. That's incredible. And, you know, you can't, I, I don't normally think of the Northeast as being particularly progressive. I mean, I know that they have some challenges up there in terms of transportation and just the congestedness of, of the communities up there that probably lead a little bit and probably mm-hmm. labor shortage as well. But, you know, you have to think if it's happening there and growing that's going to happen every place. Absolutely. And hearing other players that are getting into the industry, yeah, he had the take on Katera, but, um, you know, totally far flung. Chick-fil-A building a modular 
factory for their own um, for their own buildings, which I'm excited about that. That means uh, more spicy chicken deluxe sandwiches probably. But, you know, just seeing the challenges that are out in the marketplace right now, and um, this is definitely an opportunity, whether fully contained or some of those relationships he was mentioning of uh, on-site, off-site, working together to move the industry forward is is certainly compelling. And uh, it's great anytime connecting with someone with as much passion as Gary has. And there's not, I don't know of any others uh, with that level of passion for modular housing. So it was uh, very exciting to no, get to talk I, with them. I don't either. And, and I'd heard that the other day about Chick-fil-A. And, you know, over the years, I've seen a few other commercial chains, you know, pop up and start doing some modular type things. And it always seemed like those chains tended to fizzle. So it's kind of exciting to hear about some name brand uh, already well-established chains that are going that direction rather than startups that are trying it and sometimes doesn't happen. Uh, so so exciting. So we got to figure out uh, how metal roofing fits into all of this or other metal components um, fit into it as well. Uh, that's our challenge as, our, as a company. But I think all of our listeners and viewers, as they think about uh, the continued development of modular offsite building in their own areas, their own markets, um, everybody needs to think about, well, what are my opportunities here? How can I become a disruptor in my area um, and using offsite building as, as a vehicle for becoming that? Absolutely. You know, we play a lot in the remodeling sandbox and it's easy for those of us in that sandbox to kind of dismiss it. But just like Gary was saying, the finish work is getting done by robots. You know, it is it is moving forward. We've seen remodeling ha- uh, modular have an impact on remodeling with our customers in Japan and, and elsewhere. It's it's common for all of us. So what are we, how are we going to capitalize on it? Well, and, and he didn't touch on it, but Katera was doing some remodeling uh, work as well. So they were doing uh, retrofitting of class C um, multifamily and things like that. Um, so they were figuring out ways to do it also. And, and so it, it'll hit uh, retrofit as well, no doubt. So good stuff. Absolutely. Thanks so much for hosting. You did a great job. <laughs> I'll leave it up to you next time. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Well, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Gary. This has been fantastic. Thank you, all of our listeners, uh, for tuning in to this episode of Construction Disruption. Uh, Please watch for future episodes of our podcast. Uh, We have more great guests on tap. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or YouTube uh, or anywhere else uh, that you uh, listen to your podcasts. Uh, Thank you, as always, for being here. Take care and God bless. Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of Construction Disruption. 